leaders here at church. And if you're wondering what you just saw, um, if you haven't seen Terence Malick's, uh, Malick's film, The Thin Red Line, it was a clip from that, and the voiceover as well was from that too. And it was a question, really, that the movie wrestles with, which is this. When you consider the horrors of World War, what is it that explains it? What explains that kind of evil? Because the truth is, as humans, we can't get around the idea that we try to build stories around problems in order to understand them and give meaning. Let me give you kind of an ordinary example. I think I was 17 at the time when this happened, and I was sitting at the, the, the bus stop at Town Hall minding my own business when a man approached me, and the conversation from memory just started reasonably slowly. That he, he sort of, we were talking about, you know, what am I doing, how am I going, that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden, he just started shouting. And he was shouting and pointing at me, and he was shouting to the whole bus stop, and it was, it was packed there. He just started saying, this guy conspired to, to, to put together the Beaumont Massacre. He's responsible for the Beaumont Massacre. And he was, he was so convinced that I even, I even doubted myself for a moment. And that, but then I thought, well, hang on, I don't even know what that is. And I had to go home to actually, to actually Google what it was, right? But as soon as that started happening, right, so that's something completely unexpected. On a whatever afternoon, I was not expecting to encounter that kind of situation. And as soon as it kicked off, my mind started ticking over, as I imagine yours would have too. And I started thinking, all right, what explains this scenario? How do I understand my role in this scenario? And what I started to do was to build a story. That's what we do, right? And in my mind, it went like this. I could see that he was kind of disheveled looking. Uh, he smelled strongly of alcohol. And so my thought was, look, this is probably a homeless man who's struggling with mental illness. And for whatever reason, he's conflated me and this historic event all in the one moment and really it's not because I'm guilty of something it what explains this is probably mental illness and so because of that I knew that my part in the story was basically an arbitrary innocent bystander and so the thing that I was supposed to do was just to sit there and to wait it out and to look silly I don't I don't don't know what I did to pass the time whilst the tirade went on but eventually he kind of got bored with me and moved on but we do that with any situation right whenever you're confronted with a problem or some kind of strange situation you immediately start building a story to understand where do I fit into this? To make the situation meaningful, to know what to do and how to act. So here's the question that we're looking at today then. Why is the world so messed up? And what's the story that explains why the world is so messed up? So that we can make meaning out of it and so that we can understand our place in it. So that we might not just exist but actually start to thrive in a world that is undoubtedly messed up. Suffering and pain need a story that makes sense of them in order to make life bearable or even enjoyable. So the truth is everybody has some kind of story to explain suffering, don't they? Karma is a story to explain suffering. Karma is the idea that there's this kind of impersonal grand force that ensures justice in the universe. If you do good, you'll get good. If you do bad, you'll get bad. And the the story kind of goes that no matter how long you live, or whether you're reincarnated or whatever it is, eventually justice will come. That's the story that helps people to understand suffering or make sense of it. Stoicism is another one. The idea that suffering is just an illusion that we could get past. We've tricked ourselves into thinking things are bad, and if we are just strong enough mentally, we'll be able to push through it and become untouchable. That's a story to kind of understand suffering. Now, Buddhism would hold that suffering is a result of our desires. And it's because we desire things too much. So if we could just pull back and resist desire, 
then suffering and pain would disappear for us. These are all stories to explain suffering. But here's the issue. Everything's good in theory. The problem is what happens when you're really confronted with it. Mike Tyson, the former heavyweight champion, has a, like a phrase that he's reasonably famous for, and he says, when it comes to boxing, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. That's his theory on boxing. Everyone comes in, they've got this whole game plan worked out, you get a punch in the face, and it's just, it's panic. And it's true also with suffering, that we intellectually might think we understand it, and then it happens, and it changes the game completely. And so the question is not just, do you have a story? But will it hold up? Will it hold up when, real, when you're confronted with real suffering? H.G. Wells, an author in the 20th century who held to a humanist worldview. So his story was this. Things are getting better. As humankind, we are getting smarter, more intelligent, more educated, more tolerant. And things over time are improving. They're actually progressing. And before the Second World War in 1937, before Hitler invaded Poland... He said this, and it'll come up on the screen for you. He said, Can we doubt that presently our race, and he means humankind, will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that we will achieve unity and peace, that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement? What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude of the things that man has yet to do. 1937 he said this, two years before the Second World War. But he and his worldview and the story that he had created, which was the idea that things are bad, suffering exists, but it's going to disappear eventually, was not ready for World War II. And after the Second World War, he wrote a a second quote. He said this, The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless. The return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. See, H.G. Wells' two kind of quotes there on either side of the world war probably summarize the two mindsets that people have in approaching the question of why is this world so messed up? And they would probably be naivety and then cynicism. That either we know that things are bad, but we try not to think about it, and we entertain our minds into oblivion so that we don't have to really look at things in the face and deal with it. Or we know it, and we're depressed by it, and we become so dark and cynical that we kind of lose hope, not just in the world, but in other people and ourselves. We may say, along with H.G. Wells, that humankind is played out. It's done. I want to put to you that there is no story like the gospel story, the good news about Jesus, that gives meaning and understanding to this, that will neither lead us to naivety, it can look full face in the realities of sin and suffering in this world and deal with it head on, but it also avoids cynicism, where it doesn't just become so dark and morbid and depressive that you think, what is the point? That actually this gospel message is incredibly real, and incredibly dark in its assessment of the human condition, and yet incredibly hopeful and in anticipation of redemption. So that's what we're going to dive into today as we look at the story uh, that, that Faf read out for us just before. I'm going to pray for us before we do, though, that God would open our eyes to see his word clearly today. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are good. 
that you are our creator and that you haven't left us in the dark. That though this world is in shambles, that you are in control, that you have a plan, and you have revealed to us through your word, the Bible, what it means to live in this world now. And Father, we pray that as we look at your word in Genesis 3, that you would open our eyes to see your story and how you explain our human condition and how you bring hope into it. And Father, we pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, and these kind of weeks are kind of continuing on. It's one story, this gospel story that we're looking at. But last week started with creation. The idea that there's a creator God who is good and made us good and designed his world to be good. And, uh, and that was a talk by a guy called Mark Stevens. It's on our podcast. I really recommend you listen to it. It's a cracking talk. But he talked about the idea that, that uh, the creation account in the Bible in Genesis 1 explains why it is that we, we long for truth and beauty and good things. That actually they're kind of an echo of our creator who is good and is the source of everything good. And so we started with this idea that the world is good. And you would be forgiven for thinking at this point, as you read through Genesis 1, that the Bible is a little bit naive. When it looks, it's so good and so positive that you're like, well, that does not relate to the reality that I engage with day in and day out. And that's because the story continues into this second part, into Genesis chapter 3. And it starts to engage with the question of suffering because it needs to be engaged with. I mean, isn't it the case, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, have you ever considered the fact that if the world was either all good or all bad, that it wouldn't be a problem? If the world was only good, there'd be no reason to question it. And if the world was only bad, there'd be no reason to question it. The problem for us is, it's both incredibly good and incredibly bad. And so the reason that's perplexing is because in our minds we think, well, which one is the mistake? Is the world supposed to be good and the bad stuff is the accident? Or is the world inevitably bad and it's getting worse and the good is just incidental? That's an important question And the gospel, the first part of the gospel story has a profound answer to it, and that is this, that God, who pre-existed before the singularity, there is an eternal God who is good. Good is the eternal reality. And the problem is the bad, is evil. And so to explain that, we get to this section of the story in Genesis chapter 3, in sentences 1 to 5, and we read this part. It says there, Genesis 3, sentence 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did, you, did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So it starts with a talking snake, which the Bible explains to us is Satan, this supernatural malevolent force. And if you are here and you're a modern skeptical person, you might be tempted to tap out right there. We've got talking snakes and nudity and magic trees. Like, this is like an SBS foreign film or something. Like, I'm, I'm done at this point. But I just hold on for one second. Because the truth is, if you've ever used the word evil and meant it, the word you're using is not scientific. Evil is not a scientific term, that is a supernatural judgment on a situation. And the reason that we use it is when you see things like ISIS using children to execute soldiers, words like inappropriate don't really do it justice. It's not inappropriate, it's evil, it's wicked, it's not impractical, it's evil. 
And so when you see things like that, you reach for supernatural language. And so it's not absurd that the Bible would explain a supernatural reality. And we've, we've done another talk on this and some of the objections around it and how the Bible engages in biology in a, in a series called Life. You can check that out on our website. We don't have time to go through all of that this morning. But just suffice it to say that it is the case that all of us use supernatural language when confronted with wicked things. And so we start here with this idea that Satan tempts humankind with a thought, and the thought is this. Genesis 1 says God is really good. He's made us good. He's made his world good and for us to enjoy it. And Satan says, but maybe God isn't good. He says, so did God really say? He knows what he said. He's putting a question in humankind's mind. He's saying, did God really say? And you see as she engages with it, she says, yeah, God did say we couldn't touch this tree in the middle of the garden. We uh, couldn't uh, eat from this fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, and we must not even touch it. Now, if you go back to Genesis 2 that we looked at last week, God didn't say that. She's kind of adding to it. It seems like it's starting to get in her head that, yeah, maybe God is a cruel taskmaster. Maybe it is that he's not good to us, that he hasn't made us for good. See, I think this is how many people understand when they read the Bible, this is how they understand God and the issue of sin and his commandments. The idea is that God is not a good, not a good God. You kind of, we kind of maybe understand it like this. If you've, um, if you've ever had a dog, not a cat, cats are after the fall, bad part of creation, but, um, but if you've ever had a dog, which is good, and you've ever tried to train it, the way it works is you'll train your dog by rewarding certain behaviors like shaking hands or sitting down or not peeing inside or whatever. You give them rewards or punishments. That's how you do it. Now for the dog, they have no intrinsic interest in shaking hands or sitting down or rolling over. They, they don't even know why we want them to do this. But they know what they do want, and that's food or avoiding punishments. And so this is the relationship between the, ma- the owner and the dog in terms of getting it to do what it wants. The idea is the master wants obedience. The idea is the dog wants rewards and to avoid punishments. And this is the deal. And if we're honest, I think most people's first understanding of how God relates to us is exactly the same way. We think when he says to do something or not do something, it's, kind of, it's because what he wants is obedience. It's not for our joy in it. It's he wants obedience and we want good stuff that God has or we want to avoid his punishments. So he manipulates us in this way. But that goes against what Genesis 1 said. That actually says we are made in his image. That means we're meant to be like him. The Bible's understanding of this is unique among world religions, that God created us to, to live a certain way for our joy, that we might enjoy what he enjoys. We're made in his image to be like him. He's not cutting us out of the loop. He's inviting us in to what he enjoys. And we were made to, to enjoy creation, not as our ultimate thing, but in relationship with God to steward the creation that he has given us. But here... We see that at the heart of sin is the belief that God is stingy, that he's holding out on me, and there is a better way to live. And if I were to take control of my life and make decisions for myself, I would be happier. And so we see in Genesis 3, 6-7, what happens. It says, in, starting in sentence 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, And she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. They sewed together fig leaves and made loincloths for themselves. Sin is saying, 
I don't want you, God. You have, you have no bearing on my life. I'll decide what's right and wrong for me. In fact, I will be happier if I make these decisions and make these calls for myself. And so we do. The idea that, that sin was to make someone wise is the idea that I get to be like God. I get to decide what's right and wrong. Not him over me telling me what to do, but I get to decide what's right and wrong for my life. But you see the result here. The result is that suddenly they realize that they're naked and they cover themselves. Now this relates back to the chapter just before that we looked at last week, where where it said that they were naked and not ashamed. The idea is once sin enters the world, there are consequences for it. And the first one is shame. They feel shame. This is the origin of shame. It means for the first time that they are exposed. Shame is the sense that deep down I am unacceptable, that I deserve rejection. That's what, that's what shame generally is. Franz Kafka wrote a book called The Trial. And um, like many of his books, they, they can be tricky to understand. But it's a weird book. It's only short. But the, um, there's a character and he is arrested for a charge that he doesn't know about. And the whole book is moving, you know, him being moved around from prison to prison and all these kind of odd situations. And eventually he kind of has his day in court and he is convicted and he is sentenced to death and he dies and you never find out what the charge was. He's never told it. There's no kind of explanation of it in the story. And the kind of, people understand this as a parable, the way that Franz Kafka was saying we understand life. It's this, that we all have this weird, vague sense that we are guilty of something and yet we don't know what the charge is. That was his understanding of it. I, I'm pretty sure, if I'm right, that his take on it, though, was not that there was a God who we'd sinned against, but kind of the idea that this was absurd, that we have no idea where this comes from. We just have this weird kind of sense that we are unacceptable and it, and it has no origins. That's why we have dreams about being naked at work or we have this fear of being exposed and no idea psychologically where it comes from. Well, Genesis would explain it's because... We've broken this connection with our Creator God. The reason that this happens is because of that. And that because of that, shame has entered the human experience. See, behind how many careers have been driven by the avoidance of shame? The sense that once I achieve something, I will be, I'll be finally acceptable. I'll be somebody. I'll be someone that no one can deny is a somebody. How much of human behavior has been done to avoid shame? How many relationships are plagued by it? How many sleepless nights are because of this deep sense that ultimately I'm I'm unacceptable and once people know that, I'll be exposed? Genesis says it's a symptom of sin. This idea that, 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 that nakedness has entered is the idea that there is this sense of shame that enters human experience. But the other thing that comes in is fear. The reason it's significant that Adam and Eve would say that they experience fear, uh, sorry, nakedness, is there's a sense that once I've broken God's law, I know that I can harm you, which means that you also can harm me. And now I'm vulnerable. And so fear enters the human experience. And isn't it the case that, that shame and fear are two of the worst things that we experience? World wars, all the terrible things that Jacob was mentioning even just before are because we can do terrible things to one another. The reason we're afraid is because we know what humankind are capable of. And shame and fear punctuate our experience. And so the Bible would say this is, this is what explains much of human suffering. That if it's true that God's law was to love, one, to love Him and to love one another, then in disobeying that, we see the vast majority of human experience explained right there. 
that we say, God, we don't want you, and God giving us what we want lets us do it, and the result is suffering. There's a huge part of what's wrong with the world. But there is one more consequence that comes through in, in this story in Genesis that explains a lot of what's going on in our world, and it's this. In Genesis 3, starting at t- sentence 22, after this story, uh, after the, the, the fall of humankind, we see this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out, and, uh, out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We reje- when we reject God, we cut ourselves off from the very source of our life, from our Creator, from the one who sustains all things. And like a flower cut at the stem, we may seem alive, and yet we are very much dying. He casts out humanity and he introduces pain and death into the human experience. And if that strikes you as cruel and unnecessary, consider this. There are a couple of things to think on this point, but one is this. That in some ways, in a world where there is sin, where we can do terrible things, death is a grace. It is a grace that Hitler was not immortal, that he could die and his tyranny would end. It is a grace that Stalin did not live on forever. And that after him, as bad as things were, there wasn't anyone who was as capable as he was of causing so much human suffering. It is the case that if humankind is in this fallen condition, it would not be good for God to let this go on uninterrupted forever. The evilness would compound even worse. But it also speaks to why death is so painful. If we're just atoms floating through the universe, death is no more exceptional than life. It's a thing that just happens. The reason that it's so painful for us is because we were designed not for death, but for life. That is of God and that is good. And so what we see is sin brought into this world, shame and fear and all the terrible things we experience in humankind and death. And so the question then goes, well, why why would a good God, all right, if Genesis 1 is right, why would a good God not fix this? If he is all good and all powerful, if he has the means to do it, why would he not do it? The gospel story, the story of the Bible, is that he will fix it. That because of this, because of sin, we all face death, but there is a time and a day that that God has set when he will set things to right, when he will cast out evil and set things as they should be. The world is messed up now, but he has set a day of judgment, and after that, all who have done right, will live on in joy and peace forever, and all who have done wrong will be under the judgment of God forever. And even that doctrine, what the, what the Bible calls hell, is in a sense a comfort. A few years ago, I took to reading a couple of kind of reasonably thick historical biographies. I know, I like to party. Um, but uh, the, the two that I took on was, um, well, there was, there was I'd read a, uh, a biography about, about a guy, a Christian guy called Bonhoeffer, who conspired to kill Hitler. And so after that, I kind of wanted to know a bit about Hitler. Then um, there was a story in there about Stalin thinking Hitler was crazy, so I thought it would be good to know a little bit about Stalin. So I read these kind of bios over, over a year, sort of back to back. And, um, and in reading Stalin's biography, I mean, it is, it is incredible how much suffering that one man was responsible for. And of course, there were people fully complicit in it, like across the Politburo and everything that was going on. But really, in the end, 
It was him and his paranoid holding on to power that led to, like, we don't even know what the toll is. Some, some estimates are beyond 20 million. That is, that is almost the entire population of Australia over his reign. That is an insane amount of people suffering. And that's just the deaths, not the suffering that he caused week in and week out. But he died, unlike Hitler, who died in a blaze of glory and early, he died at the ripe old age of 74. He lived a long life. He never faced anything that you would even remotely call justice for what he had done. I think it is a comfort, and I'm sure it is for those who lived under Soviet rule, that one day he will stand before a God and he will be called to account. That he won't get away with it in this life. And so here's the issue. When it comes to the doctrine of God's eternal punishment, with Hitler and Stalin could go, we're like, sure, but who else? Where do you draw the line? Where is the line that is good enough? And the scripture is stark on this. It says there is none righteous, not even one. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You might say all guilty? Really? That's a good God's assessment of humankind? But even as you think on that, consider this from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who lived under Soviet rule. So he was a Russian novelist who served eight years in a gulag. And uh, the same kind of camp that contributed to a large portion of that 20 million who died. And uh, he said this, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? If we're honest, sin isn't just what's wrong with the world, it's also what's wrong with me. And if God were to clean up this world and to get rid of all sin, then I'm a part of that problem that he needs to deal with. If God is going to get rid of sin and make the world right, that's going to mean me too. And so here's the note of hope that we get in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3.15, where God is explaining to humankind just how deep the suffering will go as a result of sin, he says this to the woman. I'll put, in Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to Satan at this point. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The vision here might seem a little bit opaque to you, but it's what theologians call the Proto-Evangelion, which means kind of literally the first good news. It's kind of the first time the mention of Jesus coming comes up in Scripture. That one day they'll be born of a woman, a man who's fully God and fully man, and who will actually bring an end to, sin and death, uh, to, to pain and death and suffering, who will deal with Satan's works and effects finally and completely. And this is the claim of the good news, that the, the Bible, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And that this is unique among world religions. That he walked the earth, that he experienced the same kind of pain and suffering that we have, that he personally experienced injustice and suffering in an incredible way. That he was abandoned by all, and that he died, crucified as a criminal, though he was innocent of every charge, that he was the only man who was fully and completely walked innocently on this earth, and he did it to take away sin and to make us new and to make a way home. In John 3.16, in the Gospel of John, explaining the life of Jesus, it says, For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not die but have eternal life. That in Jesus is the answer to why this world is so messed up. And we're going to dig into that much more deeply next week. But for now, it's enough to say that the Bible claims that in the person of Jesus, we have the answer to sin and pain and death and suffering. That in him, we can find life. That in him, he can make us new. That anyone who believes in him, no matter what they have done, finds new life in him. seems that God's standards are even more gracious than ours. He doesn't set a line saying, if you've done this amount of good, you can get into heaven. He says, no matter what you've done, if you trust in Jesus, if you know that he's your Lord, your sin is taken away and you find new life in him. So we started with the idea of stories and how we make meaning of this world that is so messed up. I would put to you that there is no story like the gospel story that can look full-faced into the evil of, of this world and call it for what it is and yet at the same time bring hope and meaning. And it is the case, and it's a profound truth, that Jesus suffered. The claim of the Scripture is that God himself suffered. So if you want to talk about a, a story that gives meaning to suffering, and not only that, but gives the ability to cope or to live in a world with so much suffering, how much more than one with a God who is good, who we sinned against, makes a way for redemption, but actually experienced the pain and difficulty that we brought about. I remember hearing a story on a show one time that was talking, a guy was just giving an illustration of how he was going to help someone who was struggling with alcoholism. And he said to him, there's a, there's a story of two men walking along a path and, uh, and one of them falls kind of down into a chasm that there is no way out of. And his friend, he shouts up to his friend to leave him behind and to go on without him. But the friend kind of climbs his way down into the ditch and then jumps and then he's down there with him too. And the first guy who fell in says, like, why did you do that? Now you're stuck down here as well. And to which the friend replies, I know, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. And the idea that he was explaining to him is that he himself was a recovering alcoholic and he was able to help this other friend in his way out of it. How much more so with Christ who has entered into human suffering, who has created the solution for it, who knows it, What a profound truth it is to know that if you're in relationship with Jesus, that God knows what it's like to suffer. That he doesn't just say, look, I've created a solution, haven't I done enough? But he knows what you're experiencing when you pray to him, when you ask that you might be able to move through it. That is a massive thing. There is no story like the gospel. But after hearing all this, you may be madder than you thought, you know, 30 minutes looking at the Bible could make you. That it may be the case that hearing for you that God introduced pain and suffering, that, that he is, in, in a sense, responsible for all of this, is inexcusable. That no matter how much we've done, that this is, his, what he has said as the punishment is out of proportion to the crime. Now, it is true that we will never fully and completely understand all the suffering in the world. That our human minds are too finite to do it. There, look, there is no one and no worldview that... that, that claims to completely and utterly explain every instance of suffering ever. No one. And if anyone says, they're completely lying. And the Bible, too, explains it in general, but not in specific. And the claim is that God, look, either it's impossible to explain it to us as as humankind, or he's chosen not to. And so he's called us to trust him. And the question is, has he given us enough to trust him? And so I'd put to you this question, if this has made you mad about this very reality, if it's true that Genesis 1 or 3 are true, then it's also true that the Gospel of John is true. 
And if it's the case that God is responsible for all of this, he is also the one who entered into human suffering and suffered on our behalf to make a way back to him. Would that not be enough to explain to you that even though you don't know everything about every instance of suffering, that there is enough to trust him? Would you be able to say on the last day that God, the testimony of your bloodied and, and beaten son was not enough for me to believe that you were good even being in control of all of this? And maybe it is. And look, I would love to talk more about this with you. And we are not afraid of any kind of objections here. Jesus said that, that his word is the truth, and so therefore it is to be tested. And so we would love to talk more. But I wonder if the testimony of Jesus is enough to even just question that notion of, is God good? So I'm going to give you a chance in a moment to respond. And if you were here today, and this is explained, this story of the gospel has explained your experience in this world more than you ever thought it would, or in a way that you have never understood before, I'd urge you to respond. That a bunch of our leaders will be up here at the back to pray with you or to talk with you, and we'd love to hear from you. And if you are a Christian and a follower of Jesus, and this has is, this is touched on something that has affected you profoundly, we would also love to be able to pray for you, and to pray with the God who has suffered, who knows what you're going through, and has redeemed you and is calling you home. And so I'm going to pray for us now, and then after that, um, we're going to have a chance to, to respond in song, and Jacob's going to run us through what's next. But if you wanted to come up during the singing to pray, we would love to do that with you. I'm going to pray for us together. Father God, we praise you that you are an eternal and all-powerful and all-good God. That the gospel story is a profound answer to human suffering and pain. That you yourself have experienced it. You know what it was like, though unjustly. Father, we pray that you would show us just how good you are. That we would trust in Christ with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. We would know that he is the answer and he is the solution. And that outside of him there is not hope that we can hold on to. Father, I pray for anyone here who has struggled with this, that you would be their comfort, you would be their king, and that they would know the, the hope and peace of the gospel all their days. Father, we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen.